exalt, empower, embrace. This is the Park Street Family Ministry Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 26 of the Park Street Family Ministry Podcast. This is Adam Herndon. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I am so glad that we are one month closer to the spring and summer, so January is behind us. Welcome February. Uh, On this episode of the Park Street Family Ministry Podcast, we are going to continue our series talking about uh, technology and social media. And last time I mentioned how uh, to really understand what's happening with how teens are using social media, we need to look at a little at the adolescent culture. And so today we are going to talk a little bit about the religious landscape of adolescence. And then we will talk, uh, we'll actually hear from uh, a recording from uh, Kenda Creasy Dean, who is a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary in the field of youth and family. And so we will hear a few comments on uh, her thoughts on adolescent culture and the religious landscape. Um, so the first thing I want to talk about is how uh, teens are really a magnifying lens of what is happening in the culture and in the, in their world around them. And so whatever uh, we see happening in, in teen culture or uh, teen behavior and things like that, it is more often than not a reflection of the values and things that are happening in their world. And so one example is a lot of times uh, people give teenagers a hard time about always being on their phones. But the reality is is that a lot of us as parents are on our phones all the time, too. And teens have grown up seeing their uh, in the iPhone kind of world. And so they are no strangers to seeing their parents on their their phones. Um, in fact, my eight year old is already asking for a cell phone and we are like, I don't think so. Um, but he sees us on them. He sees what they're capable of, and that, and and so that is what he, you know, he's desiring. He wants a uh, a cell phone. But looking at some of the values of our culture, I think one of the greatest values in our culture is our individualism. And the end of individualism is the happiness of or the person's individual happiness. I mean, that is kind of the ultimate goal, the outcome of it, of this individualism is that we just generally want people to be happy. We, uh, we, you know, our culture believes that happiness is the ultimate standard for belief and practice, um, even as it relates to religious belief. And uh, one of the greatest areas we see that is that if a major religion, or in our case Christianity, pushes against somebody's happiness uh, based on a moral truth, then Christians are seen as intolerant and uh, not accepting and because we are infringing on somebody's happiness. So happiness in our culture is really the ultimate God. It is often called therapeutic individualism, uh, that, uh, that, that my own source of happiness and contentment is what is ultimate and what matters most in life. 
Now, of course, I'm not against happiness. I, I, I like happiness. I like to be happy. Um, but happiness is not what is ultimate in our world, especially through the eyes of the Christian. Uh, God is ultimate. And God's glory and God's fame and uh, God's kingdom are what is ultimate. And sometimes to live in, those, in that reality, I must give up my happiness in order to, or, or what Jesus would say, I must deny myself um, in order to follow the way of the cross. And so that therapeutic individualism is rampant in our culture. Christian Smith, a sociologist at Notre Dame, defines it uh, therapeutic individuals in this way. Uh, the self is the source and standard of moral knowledge and authority and individual self-fulfillment as the preoccupying purpose in life. So a much fancier way to say what, what I kind of how I summed it up. So no longer do adolescents feel the need to adjust their thinking or their lifestyle to a religious faith. But now the self can believe and do what it chooses regardless of society or religious standards. Uh, James Nolan, the psychologist, writes this. He says, Where once the self was brought into conformity with the standards of external derived authorities and social institutions, it now is compelled to look within. So in individualism, we become the authority and source of our of our own life and our and what is moral and uh, what what is right and what is wrong. So I think the first step in understanding the religious landscape in adolescence is the understanding is or being aware of this therapeutic individualism that is all over our Western world today. Now, contrary to maybe what I would think would be popular belief, a vast majority of adolescents actually identify themselves as religious, or at least say they believe in God. Uh, a few years ago now, it's probably getting close to 17 years ago, so the, the numbers may have changed somewhat, but just to give you some perspective, the, a study was done, uh, probably the most comprehensive religious study on uh, adolescents and spirituality, uh, called the National Survey of Youth and Religion, uh, done uh, out of Notre Dame with uh, by Christian Smith, you know, found that three quarters of U.S. teens identify themselves as Christian, um, but only about half of that number considered uh, their faith very important to them. Uh, the study found that over fifty percent of Protestant teens who profess said their faith uh, plays a major role in their life decisions. And only about 16% of teens identify themselves as non-religious. Um, and many of them say that they at least believe in some sort of God. So the idea that youth cultures is completely devoid of faith is not true. Um, however, even though a majority of teens do identify themselves as Christian, many of our teens don't believe that the Christian faith, among all religions, offers exclusive truth. Um, and that kind of goes back to that individual. Where does that come in? That, indiv that therapeutic individualism. And another interesting st statistic is that even though a majority of teens identify themselves as Christian, less than one-third of the teens believe uh, that only one religion is true. And so 
religion for a lot of adolescents today is really a mosaic, a hodgepodge of uh, what they think is right and good and true. And so they will um, they will grasp the things out of the Christian faith that they've grown up in the Christian faith uh, that supports that supports and promotes their own happiness and also the happiness of others. And then they'll they'll pull from other faiths and kind of put this mosaic of uh, uh, of religious uh, ideas together that essentially serve them and serve their happiness. Um, or as Christian uh, Smith calls it, a with what teens have done, even in the even in our church, um, in the Christian church, have formed this idea called a moral therapeutic deism. And so there are five tenets, and a lot of teens. If you would say, "Hey, what do you think of these ideas about religion?" If you promoted these, if you uh, told them these five tenets. A lot of them would say, oh, yeah, I believe that's true. I believe that's true. And so this is what moral therapeutic deism teaches. It says that a God exists who created and orders the world and watches over life on earth. Number one. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Four, God is not involved in my life except when I need God to resolve a problem. And five, good people go to heaven when they die. Professor Kenda Dean uh, calls moral therapeutic deism a parasite. She says this parasite has latched itself onto American Christianity and is slowly draining the life of it. Teens do not see these tenets as contradictory to what Christianity teaches. The cause of this is largely due to what our churches are teaching, which is that Christianity is not a big deal, God does not ask much of us, and we are simply another social institution. And then Smith says this, he says, uh, Moral therapeutic deism is actively displacing the substantive traditional faiths of conservative black and mainline Protestantism, Catholicism, and Judaism in the United States. It may be the new mainstream American religious faith. So if you listen to all those tenets of moral therapeutic deism, what you see is that it makes religion, it makes faith really all about me and my own happiness. So there's this big God who created all things, which we would affirm, um, but he doesn't just watch over life, right? God is actively involved in our life. And so this idea that God orders the world and watches over life is that God's kind of up there just to uh, protect people. That God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other is true. Um, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions, that is not true. See, that is putting Christianity and other world religions kind of on the same moral ground and authority. Um, but we know other world religions are false, and any truth in them is because of the image of God that still resides in people who don't believe in the God of the Scriptures. And then, of course, the biggest lie in there is three, is that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. 
uh, that idea is nowhere in the Scripture, right? The central goal, according to, you know, the Westminster Catechism, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. However, I think the ultimate goal of humankind is Christ-likeness, right? Going back to uh, how God created Adam and Eve in the garden, um, being a reflection of Jesus in this world, purging sin out of our life, which can be painful and lead to our unhappiness. Um, and so our goal in life is really about our life being hidden in Christ, that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so the central goal of life is to be Christ in our world, uh, to, to reflect him, and in order to really reflect Christ, we have to be self-sacrificing. We have to sacrifice our own happiness and comfort that we are to put the needs of others in front of our own to walk the way of the cross. Because in order to truly be Christ-like, we must carry our own cross. We must suffer as Christ suffered for the sake of others. And so what is more important than just happiness is actually finding joy in life, to be content in any circumstance to find joy, as James would say, uh, through our trials, because we know that having faith through trial makes us perfect and complete or more Christ-like. So forming ourselves or becoming more like Christ is gives us something much greater than happiness, which is fleeting. Becoming Christ-like actually gives us an eternal source of joy. So tenet three is really the most dangerous part of moral therapeutic deism, but it's just that's re- that is that is a genuine belief of what people think religion is. That religion exists or Christianity exists to make me happy. So the fourth tenet: God is not involved in my life except when I need God to resolve a problem. Uh, really, just turns God into a giant Santa Claus, uh, God or a genie in the bottle. You know, God, uh, I. I don't need you when things are going well, but every once in a while when things get rough, I I need you to answer my wishes, and prayer simply becomes wishes. Um, God, these are things I want you to do, and a lot of times I want you to do these things uh, to, to benefit me, not for the good of somebody else or for the good of you and your kingdom, but for me. And the fifth tenet, uh, good people go to heaven when they die. The problem is there is no one good, no, not one. Uh, we can never be good enough to merit heaven. And all people are not good. There's this idea um, in the goodness of all humanity, but um, as we know, the world is broken. All people are sinful and are capable of great evil. And and so uh, all people need a Savior. Nobody is good enough on their own when they die. Only Jesus is good enough. And, and when we uh, profess faith in him, it is his righteousness that allows us to uh, be in heaven. It is his blood. It is his forgiveness. Um, it is his renewal of us through his spirit that allows us to go to heaven. And he says, you know, that he, that Jesus that says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Um so moral therapeutic deism is uh, is a problem. It's a parasite, as Kenda Dean says. And it's one that we need to teach against and guard against because of the therapeutic individualism in our culture that bleeds into our Christianity to where 
we believe that the ultimate source purpose of religion is for us is our happiness um which is uh which is crazy different than uh, what the church has professed all throughout the centuries i mean if you think about the apostles creed all the tenets of the apostle creed are about god right about who god is i believe in god the father almighty creator i believe in jesus christ his son our lord i believe and the Holy Spirit, and so the 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 Apostles' Creed, the the one of the oldest standing creeds of the Church, is all about God. Um, but moral therapeutic deism is all about me and how God serves me, and so uh, so so it is a problem. It is a a parasite that has latched itself onto our Christianity. And it crops up uh, even as parents in our own beliefs as well. It's not just something our kids are battling, um, but it is a it's a it's a problem for the Western Church, I believe, and one that we need to guard against because it influences what our kids believe and feel about religion, and the goal of religion being everybody's happiness, which it is not. It is about Christ likeness. It is about uh, bringing glory and praise and worship to God. Uh, however, the largest contextual factor of kids' religious experience is is you, is the parents. Um, the most influencing factor, whether a teen uh, marked themselves as uh, religious or not, was their parents' faith and practice. Uh, Smith writes that teens with parents who attend religious services less often and for whom faith is less important are more likely to be non-religious. In every category, over 50% of teens said that their beliefs were similar or very similar to the beliefs of their parents. Teens will more often than not model what is believed and practiced in the home. And of course, this isn't a guarantee, but it is... uh, it is uh, very likely that the that the faith that is practiced and reflected in the home will be the faith and practice of the teens, and so teens who had parents who were very committed to the church and uh, faith was a regular conversation in the home, those teens were uh, had reflected the faith of their parents, and so as parents, you are the greatest predictor of faith in your kids' lives. Now, of course, like I said. This is not a uh, a guarantee, but uh, it is. You are very. Your kids are very likely to reflect faith, to be faithful people, if faith is practiced and taught about and lived out in the home. So I'm going to play a clip now of uh, Kenda Dean, professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. Uh, she's just having a follow up conversation after a lecture she gave and. Uh, she talks about the role of the, of the parents' faith in their kid's life. And I think she makes here a very important distinction between just belief and what it means to believe in something. So let's listen in. Well, we, what we know is that this is not ju- the, the, the challenges of faith are not limited to young people. We know that this is, these are challenges that adults have as well, parents have as well, and that um, this is an intergenerational um, issue so that many of the things that are true for young people in terms of their, their um, faith formation are also true of the parents who are trying to form them, right? 
um, we had a conversation at one of our breaks where um, a young man named Brian was talking to us about um, parents' um, cosmic lack of confidence or lack mm -hmm. of confidence in the cosmos, basically. And I think what he meant by that was they, they were going through the motions of their faith and they were going through um, the, the surface understanding and they wanted to um, believe this on behalf of their kids. But when it came right down to it, they, they believed, but they didn't really believe that it was going to matter or that if they prayed, anything was going to really happen. And the way I wanted to parse that was this. What I think parents and adults have trouble with, maybe not so much believing, but trusting. Mm. I think what's broken down is trust. We, we might believe in the way that we, our culture talks about believing as a cognitive thing, or we might not. But what the crisis is, is the trust. We don't trust that it's going to make a difference. We don't trust that the relationship mm -hmm. is going to be there. So, you know, if I say that I believe in the sense that I believe in you, it means I trust that you are going to come through for me. Mm -hmm. That's believing in you as opposed to just believing you. Right. And that is a deeper kind of believing in when somebody believes in you. And um, that's the kind of trust, the kind of believing in that is the believing in of faith. And we might believe these tenets of our faith in a way that we can say yes when it comes to confirmation, yes when it comes to reciting things in church, but believing in that this faith, this God is going to come through for me and it's going to come through for my children. That's the confidence that's broken down. And that kind of confidence comes through, I think, in time, when it's tested um, yeah. in times of trial, when it is um, maybe encountered in liminal kinds of um, contexts, and, and when it is experienced in moments of deep community. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about those contexts is those are the exact contexts that we know from um, research that are when young people will, will be willing to say they have encountered God. Mm -hmm. Even young people who don't have a religious background are willing to say something holy happened in times of trial, mm -hmm. in times of liminality, you know, in times of deep and intense community. So if we're going to forge trust as opposed to just get a bunch of beliefs pounded into people, it means we're going to need to engage young people and maybe communities of faith generally. In, we're going to need to be there for them in times of trial. We're going to need to foster these liminal um, experiences where they create these in-between communities mm -hmm. um, that are somehow third spaces mm -hmm. um, between where they are hanging out normally and where they have profound communal um, experiences. That's where the holy seems to be most palpable. So if we're going to talk about places where they sense God's movement towards them, mm -hmm. those seem to be reliable spaces that that is possible to perceive. Mm. I, I think you can hang a ministry on that. So some really great ideas in there uh, as it relates to uh, the religious landscape of our teens. One, the importance of 
faith being more than just a set of beliefs, but faith actually being what it is, actually trusting in God, believing in what uh, that God is active and involved in our life, uh, that He cares for us, that we can trust Him with our lives and our decisions, and go to Him uh, with them. And that really starts in the home. When uh, when you talk about faith in the home, when you pray, uh, is it just a matter of belief, or are you actually trusting in God? Uh, I think it's important for our kids to see us actively trusting in God, because uh, that's going to have a profound impact on their faith. Another important part of that is she mentioned community a lot, and so uh I would go beyond than just saying community, but I would say the importance of the of the church and the kids being involved in in youth ministry, having these experiences together, whether it's through um, retreats or just regular group gatherings. Uh, also, really, really important in the faith formation of our kids if we want to protect against uh, this uh, just this moral therapeutic deism, and we want our kids to actually believe in. The Christianity of the Gospels, or I should say the Gospel. Um, so how does all of this relate to kids' use of social media? Well, social media really becomes a tool about kids' happiness. And so um, and so in a in a religious landscape where if if they're believing that life is all about happiness, then social media becomes an extension of that where they want that to be a place that promotes their own happiness. And so uh, so when, when it is meeting that need, when they're posting things and people are uh, liking about it and they're getting good comments, it becomes all about um, their happiness. It becomes fulfilling uh, because it is meeting uh, their... Uh, what they perceive is the ultimate goal of life. So social media becomes a tool that is really about my happiness. And that's why you can see such crazy mood swings around teenagers and social media. Um, it can lead to great joy in their life when it's when it's fulfilling that need. But it can also become a source of depression and anxiety when they're getting negative feedback and things like that. The other way it comes through is kind of in, in pluralism and, and posting things that may seem contrary to truth, uh, especially truth taught in Scripture. But if it is making somebody happy or about somebody's happiness, then there is this affirmation that happens with it. And so uh, kids, teens can post things that are like things on people's walls and pages that are contrary to the gospel— and to me, that is a way of affirming that thing. Um, and in their mind, it's not contrary to the gospel because it's serving somebody's happiness. And so I think that is one of the dangers of, uh, of that moral therapeutic deism is that uh, it, it turns religion into a place of everybody's happiness. And so... Anything that is, does not serve somebody's happiness or that is hard is uh, not part of my religious landscape, but everything that does serve that need is part of my religious landscape, even if those ideas are not consistent with the God that I say that I believe in. 
And so that's why it's so important that faith in the, our teens' lives becomes more than just a set of beliefs, but they actually believe in Jesus Christ. They actually trust Him with their lives and the things that He says, um, and and that it's inconsistent to live a life that accepts uh, a pluralism uh, with the claims of Jesus in Scripture. And so when you so when you kind of uh, have this therapeutic individualism in our society, and then you combine that with the kind of egocentricism of adolescence, uh, you know, the self-preservation mode they're in, the need for belonging, and you wrap all that together, and then you stamp it with social media, uh, it becomes a, a melting pot of uh, moral therapeutic deism or therapeutic individualism, if you want to throw, uh, if you want to take kind of the God's role out of it. And that's why as parents, it's so important uh, to have these conversations at home. Uh, you should be following your kids' uh, social, or I say should is probably a strong word, but I highly encourage you to follow your kids on social media, see what they're posting, see what they're talking about, see what the comments are on their page, and talk about these things. Um, because sometimes they're doing it and they don't really understand the implications. They're doing it thinking that they're doing something that is aligned with their faith, but what they don't understand is how really what's informing their faith is not the gospel, but the but their culture. And so it's important to have these conversations at home. It's important that as parents we model uh, what it means to have an active faith in Jesus Christ, to actually trust, believe in Him. And so uh, if you're struggling with ways to do that, as always, please uh, reach out to me, and I would love to talk with you a little more about that and provide you with some great resources to help get you started and just remember, it's never too late to start. You know, even if your teens are older, maybe getting close to uh, to college and being out of the house, it is never too late to to start. And so, um, I hope you enjoyed uh, the podcast today, as we talked a little bit about the religious landscape, the world that our kids are growing up in, um, how that world uh, is informing a lot of their Christianity, um, and. Also, the important role that you have in your kids' faith development, and it's a huge responsibility we have as parents to uh, to model a genuine faith in the life of our kids. And the studies have shown the more we do that, the more likely it is that our kids will become faithful followers of Christ. Um, and then, as Ken Dean also pointed out, the importance of being involved in faith community as well. Um, so that is going to do it for us today on uh, this episode of the Park Street Family Ministry Podcast. Thanks for joining. I hope that you will join us next week, or sorry, next month. Uh, next month, we are going to talk about the culture of performance and stress that our kids are growing up in and how that uh, infor or informs the way that they use social media. Uh, so once again, thank you. I hope you have a a uh, wonderful uh, February and hope you will join me again on March 1st. Goodbye.